Hey, it's Sarah, and you are listening to the very first episode of Kids These Days. I am so excited to be here with you all, and I cannot wait to see where this journey takes us. So today, we are going to talk about forced apologies, making kids say sorry. I cannot tell you the amount of times I've had a provider or a teacher or a parent tell me how important it is to them that their child be polite and respectful. I hear you. The world could definitely use a little more of that now. And today, that's exactly what we're going to walk through. We're going to talk a little bit about empathy, brain development, why forced apologies don't work, and what to do instead. But first, I want to ask you all a question. How often do you hear yourself apologizing to others during the day? Does it feel like something you should just do, like a compulsion? How do you feel when you say sorry and don't really mean it? How do you feel when someone apologizes to you and they aren't really sorry? So, empathy. Empathy is that ability to imagine or understand how someone else is feeling in a particular situation and respond with care because you can understand how they feel. It has to be natural and spontaneous and sincere. So as you can imagine, it's a very complex social emotional skill. And if you have ever read a Brene Brown book or listened to her podcast, P.S. by the way, please do that when you're done with this one, you know what I'm talking about. But here's the thing. Humans are wired from birth for empathy. So children are born with the capacity for empathy. They just, they don't get it yet. And a couple of things have to happen for them to truly develop it. So one of those things is a developmental milestone, which is being able to identify your own feelings. And that in and of itself isn't the developmental milestone, but some things like receptive and expressive language. So what you hear and understand and what you can say, those have to develop. You have to be able to categorize, recall, have recognition, and be able to recognize some of those common feelings that most people have. You know, like happy, sad, mad, etc. And some ways to do this in your program or your home are read books about emotions, look at posters or pictures with emotions faces on them. Next piece is this developmental milestone of possessing a sense of self as separate from others. So if you've ever met a toddler, they're kind of like um, the seagulls on Finding Nemo, the mine, mine, mine. I looked at it, it's mine, I wanted it, it's mine, I touched it, it's mine. So that's not really possessing a sense of self as separate from some other. It's their little bubble. When someone has that sense of self as separate from others, they are able to understand that others have different thoughts or feelings. They're able to look at a situation and imagine how another peer might feel or react. They can imagine what response might be appropriate or comforting in a particular situation. And a way that you can do this in your program is to label cubbies with kids' pictures. That way they get to know this is my stuff and that's your stuff. A third thing that is vitally important for children developing empathy is seeing adults model it for them. Seeing adults model things like concern, compassion, identification with another person's pain. 
Research has shown that children who can interpret emotional signals accurately are more likely to respond appropriately to others and are less likely to become angry and aggressive. Again, we could use a little bit more of that, I think. So in a really great place to practice empathy is during play. So things like caring for baby dolls, taking turns, uh, building together with blocks, reading a book together as a group, um, cooking in the kitchen. So children with those positive, secure attachments and relationships with both adults and their peers naturally mature into having empathy for others. So situation for you. You come up on your kid, holding the marker in one hand. There is beautiful marker written all over their body and all over the wall. And you look at them and go, did you do that? Uh, no. Why did you do that? Uh, I don't know. Well, as frustrating as that answer might be, that's because a large portion of action taking for young children happens in either the brainstem, that fight, flight, or freeze, or the limbic system, that emotional, I hate you, stupid, poopy face part of your brain. And they truly don't know why they did what they did. Because as humans, we're feeling creatures that think and not the other way around. So here's the thing, your brain, not fully developed until your mid to late 20s. Some research even says more like your 30s. And this, this developed part we're talking about is the prefrontal cortex, the CEO, the decision maker of your brain. The prefrontal cortex is where most adults make most of their decisions. So what are some of the functions of this prefrontal cortex? Well, it's things like attention and short-term memory. Like that ability to focus on one thing while ignoring distractions and remembering more things. It's things like logical, organized thinking, complex planning, decision making. So, you know, rationalizing and making smarter choices, planning out tasks for your day, thinking logically and making more calculated assessments in situations, which leads to another one of the functions of the prefrontal cortex which is impulse control and risk management. So that ability to assess a risky situation and determine whether it will result in a long-term benefit and whether or not I can maintain that self-discipline, self-regulation, and avoid impulsive behaviors. And so let me expand a little bit on that last part there, which is a function of the prefrontal cortex of self-regulation. When we talk about self-regulation, we're talking about mental processes that enable us to plan focus attention, remember instructions, juggle multiple tasks successfully, not lose our you-know-what when something happens in a Zoom meeting and you maybe don't understand what everybody is saying and so you kind of just blow your top a little bit, that might be a lack of self-regulation. So here's the thing, the brains of young children, and apparently sometimes adults, have not yet developed to the point where they can think like adults, even though they may act like many adults sometimes. Let's talk a little bit more about your brain and empathy in the context of apologies. Why forced apologies don't work. When you say you're sorry and mean it, the following has to be true. You know what you did. You know why you did it. You know why it was wrong. And 
now that you know what it was and why it was wrong, you will take steps to ensure that you won't do it again. Okay, so if we understand and are able to apply the concepts that empathy is a complex skill that's developed over time through modeling and peer relationships, and that a large portion of the action taking that happens in young children starts from either their brainstem or their limbic system, and that we understand and can apply the idea that children truly do not know why they do what they do most of the time, then we can begin to wrap our arms around the idea that you cannot make children be sorry or feel sorry. Forcing children to comprehend and take responsibility for emotions they don't yet understand, like shame, guilt, remorse, is really confusing, y'all. It's basically like handing me a complex calculus problem and telling me to figure it out. And yes, I did Google the words hard math to get the term calculus because I legit blocked all mathematical terminology from my brain about 20 years ago. When we force children to apologize for an action that was driven by their brainstem or their limbic system, and not that decision-maker CEO prefrontal cortex, we are not helping them build a connection between what they did, the action or the consequence, and why they did it, that responsibility accountability. Going back to that, why did you do that situation we talked about earlier with the markers and the artwork. And also, when we force children to apologize, we create confusion or distrust about their own thoughts and feelings and what they feel and what they think. And then they, you know, have to go to therapy when they're 27 to figure out what feelings are. Or so I've heard. We then also teach them that saying sorry absolves you of any wrongdoing. If you've ever heard the story of, you know, once you squeeze the toothpaste out of the tube, you can't get it back in. Right? So saying sorry doesn't get the toothpaste back in the tube. We're also teaching children, when we force them to apologize, that they should lie about their feelings and the things that they do. Saying sorry got me out of this before, better just say that this time. And it also teaches them that others' feelings don't matter. Well, I said I was sorry. We're teaching that child that's receiving the unauthentic apology that their feelings aren't important, that they should accept apology regardless. And ultimately, not to trust what others say. And you know, if you go back to what we talked about at the top of the episode of thinking about how does it feel in your body when someone apologizes to you that you know isn't sorry. If from a very young age you've just been taught that when someone says they're sorry, you just accept it. I hear you. Okay, Sarah. Great, sure. But how do I make them understand sorry so that they can use it on their own? Well, simple. Modeling. Modeling is key to teaching children how to begin to understand and use sorry when it's real. So, what does this look like in practice, you ask? Well, first, we have to understand and remember, children will often apologize in their own way. A smile, a hug, give up a turn with a toy, laugh, walk away. And we have to learn to be okay with that. Trust me. If they're sorry, 
you'll know it. And second, you people, you will be doing a lot of the heavy lifting to start. And that means things like remembering that kids' actions most often come from their brainstem or their limbic system and not the prefrontal cortex. You got to take a deep breath and remember that they are still learning. Repetition, repetition, repetition with some consistency, consistency, consistency. Because children need to experience something an average of 2,000 times, that's their repetition, in context in the same way, that's that consistency, before they begin to understand. Let me put that in your ear one more time. Children need to experience something an average of 2,000 times in context and the same way before they begin to understand. But, hear me, mistakes are going to happen and that is okay. That's how we learn, right? So take a deep breath and remember you are still learning. And if you slip up, acknowledge it, apologize, and try again. And look at you modeling and whatnot. So here's an example. You model the apology and encourage the child to ask what they can do to help make it right. And remember, always, always take a deep breath and use a calm, positive tone of voice. Sarah hits Anna. Teacher says, ouch, hitting hurts. Hands are for gentle touches and playing with toys. Let's check to see if she's okay. Anna, I'm sorry you got hit. Can you tell Sarah I don't like it when you hit me? It hurts. Sarah, did you hear Anna's words? She said she doesn't like it when you hit her. It hurts her body. Anna has a red mark on her arm and she's crying. Let's ask her what you can do to make it right. Now, you can ask Anna. She might not know. That's okay. And you can ask Sarah what she could do. She might not know and that's okay. But that's what you're there for, that modeling. So you might say, Maybe Sarah could get you an ice pack or a wet paper towel. Would that help? Or she could give you a gentle touch or a hug. Would you like her to give you a gentle touch or a hug? And please, as a little bit of a side note right here, please never make children touch or hug if they're not comfortable doing so. So I want to pop back to that for just one second. That second line where it said, Anna, I'm sorry you got hit. Can you tell Sarah I don't like it when you hit me? That hurts. That's you modeling the apology. Okay. And then walking them through what to say instead and how to make it right. That's the second half. So with older children, I'm talking four and five and up. You can have that conversation with them to say, how do you think you would feel or react if that thing happened to you as a reflection for understanding and connection and never for shaming because we're trying to help them to fill up that sense of self and empathy. So if I can help them connect with how they might feel if that happened to them, that might start to build a connection in their brain for the next time that situation happens. Accidents are also an excellent time to meaningfully teach children an appropriate way to use sorry. So if we go back up to that idea that saying sorry and meaning it requires that you know what you did, why you did it, why it was wrong, and that you don't intend to do it again, encouraging a child to say sorry for an accident is completely appropriate. For example, a child bumps into another child's block tower and it falls over. She knocked over my 
tower. I didn't mean to. Sarah, I'm sorry that happened. Anna, it sounds like it was an accident that you didn't mean to knock it over. I didn't. Well, if it was an accident, you can say sorry and then help make it right. Lastly, and perhaps, well, at least for me, the most challenging step in this whole process is that of accepting apologies from others. I say challenging because this is something I personally have really been focused on in my own, for myself, for my own practice, in addition to teaching it to others. So when a person apologizes, instead of saying, that's okay, try saying, thank you for your apology, and then move on. By saying, that's okay, you can send the unintended message of, my hurt My feelings are not important, and I'll just accept the apology to be done with the situation. Along with the, quote, wrongdoer, not fully understanding their role in the, quote, wrongdoing. But when you say thank you for your apology, you acknowledge everyone's role in the situation and begin to build connections and understanding. So, okay, that's it. That's the end of our very first episode. Be sure to check out the infographic for this episode in the show notes. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or want to share your practice related to this or a previous episode, please email us at kidsthesedayspod at gmail or tag us on Instagram at kidsthesedayspod. And don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time on Kids These Days. Music track, Hackbeat by Kevin McLeod. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by Sarah Holmes and Rudy Benavides. Infographics by Rudy Benavides. Kids These Days is made possible through grant funding provided by the Kansas Department for Children and Families.